Hello everyone, and welcome back to Salem Witch Trials. We're just going to continue with the Afflicted Part 2. Carry on where we left off. The Devil's Book plays a prominent role in the Salem Trials. Its presence reflects a growing reliance on written and signed contracts in increasingly commercial New England. Plus, a recent emphasis on signatures as a legal requirement as well as an emblem of loyalty and allegiance. Be it signing a church covenant, an oath of loyalty to the government, or even a confession of witchcraft. In England, signed confessions have become particularly popular during the East Anglia witch hunt of 1645-47. There was also a tremendous growth in the number of books published in Massachusetts in the 1680s and an appreciation for them among the highly literate Puritan population. Given that she had watched her home and entire village burn down, Mercy Short, not surprisingly, found flames of fire and burning to be the cruelest of all torments. When Satan gathered with its followers... They included French Canadians as well as Indian Sagamores, diverse of whom she knew and particularly named them. Mercy also named some English accomplices of Satan, though these Cotton Mather kept to himself, for he considered the name to be innocent, if not for what turned out to be Mother's good judgment. The accusations might have spread out from Boston as well as Salem. Mother professed himself amazed by Mercer's ability to provide textbook perfect descriptions of the devil and his temptations, as well as his torments. He would have been less surprised had he realised that Mercer's neighbours in Salmon Falls had been the orthodox whose home suffered lithobolia a term for a stone-throwing demon attacks for months on end in 1682. Mercy, then an impressionable 17-year-old, had probably sat through months of lectures from Reverend John Emerson, the nephew of the Gloucester minister of the same name, who would have warned his congregation how to spot Satan and how he would try to tempt them. In 1692, the younger Emerson was a war refugee living in Charlestown, but he travelled several times to Salem to help out with the trials. He heard the confession of Dorcas Hall and tried to convince Martha Tyler to confess as well. The war itself was just part of the concern. Increase Mather observed the demons were not so frequent in places where the gospel prevaileth as in the darkest corners of the earth. And northern New England was just that, a dark corner of piety, inhabited by heathen, Native Americans that was, a Papist French and non-Puritan Englishman, including Quakers, Baptists, Atenomians, Royalists, and supposedly godless fishermen. Of course, let's not forget the Catholics too. Satan and his minions particularly infested the East and West Indians as well as the Popish countries, those of the Catholics. 
Cotton Mather compared King William's War to the struggle against Satan being waged in Salem and blamed the Indians for both conflicts in the Dissinim and this was Look to Warsome. Dissinium Look to Warsome is 1699 history of remarkable occurrences in the Long War, which New England hath had with the Indian savages, so he calls them anyway. Bear in mind, that's not what I'm calling them. That's not what history is calling them. That is what Cotton Mather wrote. So it's just his opinion alone. The story of the war made by the spirits of the invisible world upon the people of New England in the year 1692 hath entertained a great part of English word with world sorry with a just astonishment and I have met with some strange things not here to me mentioned which have made me often think that this inexplicable war might of some as its of its original among the Indians who chief sagamores are well known unto some of our captives to have been horrid sorcerers and hellish conjurers and such as conversed with demons. That's what Mathers wrote in his book. It's not the belief of historians and it's really not the belief of very many. It's definitely not my belief, but it was his belief at the time. Englishmen had long considered Native Americans to be minions of Satan, a fact reflected in what they called them. Unable to pronounce native names, English settlers of New England often gave them nicknames, the most famous being King Philip. For Metacomet, English settlers on the banks of the Mariscotta River in Maine chose to call the local Sachem John Cotter, a play on Demoscotter as well as an allusion to witchcraft. For John Cotter was the leading English witchcraft authority of the day, the author of a Trial of Witchcraft, showing the true method of the discovery and discovery, 1616. No one but a main Indian sachem would know as much about the dark arts as a leading English expert. The Sachem lived not far from Merrymeeting Bay, and Englishmen often referred to witches' gatherings as Merry Meeting or Merry Meetings, which is really atrocious because yes, sometimes when mainly new witches actually not the old witches but mainly new witches when they meet each other they say, merry we meet and merry we part, meaning we meet in love and light, we part in love and light. We are happy to meet you and we are happy we have met you and we are happy that we are leaving you in good faith. It doesn't mean anything else. At least one Native American place name shows up on the name of the witches familiar in England. Piwacket. Do you remember that? Piwacket was an imp. From Matthew Hopkins, do you remember? This is where it comes from. Piwacket was the name of one of the imps familiars of witches that Matthew Hopkins detected in his witch hunt, apparently, in East Anglia in 1645-47. Interestingly, Piwacket or Piwacket was the name of a group of Native Americans living in the White Mountains around the headwaters of the Saco River 
in the far interior of New Hampshire and Maine. Hmm. Only a few years before Hopkins discovered of an imp, which Hopkins said no mortal could invent. Darby Field became the first Englishman to climb the White Mountains and to report the existence of the Piwakit or Pwakit. This unique and exotic name for a people he believed to be in league with the devil obviously had made an impression on Hopkins, so he just made up the fact that she had a familiar called that. Like I said in the beginning, he made crap up Matthew Hopkins as he went along. The main frontier was dark in a place because of the natives and the French, but Cotton Mather warned, not even in the outskirts of the Puritan New England, one had to be on guard, for Satan terribly makes a prey of you and leaves you captive to do his will. No one was safe. Take the example of Benjamin Blackman, a young Harvard-trained minister who moved to Sacco, Maine in the early 1680s. Rather than practice his profession, Blackman became a land speculator. Some of his purchases were on behalf of men from Andover, who hoped to settle in the region. Meanwhile, Sacco, desperate for a minister, hired William Milbourne, a Baptist. The same William Milbourne, who would move to Boston during King William's War and be one of the first to speak out against the witch trials. The province of Maine had been established in the 1630s as an Anglican colony, but a shortage of settlers and ministers meant that nearly everyone was welcome, including Reverend John Wheelwright and his Antonimian followers, who established wells, although Massachusetts extended authority into New Hampshire in the 1640s and Maine in the 1650s, Officials in Maine maintained toleration for a wide range of Protestant beliefs. While trauma linked to the war in the dark corner of New England seems likely to have been a source for some of the afflicted, scholars have also recently raised the possibility that a few accusers suffered from sleep paralysis. This very real condition was diagnosed only in the 20th century, but it seems to explain at least the occasional alleged supernatural affliction. Sleep paralysis usually occurs at one is falling asleep or in awakening state. And people are able to see and hear, but they have very limited capacity to move or speak because muscle activity is suppressed during REM sleep. Somewhere between 5 and 20% of the population have experienced sleep paralysis at least once as a nightmare, of course. It is accompanied by a feeling of weight on the chest possibly a choking sensation, and the conviction that the individual is in some way under attack. Indeed, the terms mare, as in nightmare, is related to the Germanic ma and Old Norse mara, both of which refer to a supernatural being that suffocates people by lying on their chest during sleep. Consider, then, Richard Coleman's testimony that Bridge Bishop entered his home while he was sleeping, lay on his breast, and so oppressed him that he could not speak nor stir, nor not so much to awake his wife, although he endeavoured so much to do so. The next night, Bishop returned and took hold of him by the throat. John Lauder attested that he had a dispute with Bishop over her chickens, getting loose in his yard. Not long afterward, he went to bed and then felt a great weight upon his chest. 
Looking into the bright moon, he realised it was Bridget Bishop sitting on his chest. She grabbed his throat and almost choked him. Louder had no strength or power in my hands to resist or help myself. Two men made very similar complaints against Susanna Martin. Sleep paralysis can explain only a part of Louder's complaints against Bishop. He also accused her of attacking him with a black thing that had a body like a monkey's claws, like a rooster's, and a face more like a man's than a monkey's. The beast flew at him and flung dust that hit him in the chest, striking him dumb for three days. Louder spectacular testimony suggests that he had had a nightmare as part of the sleep process. It's also possible Louder suffered from mass hysteria that gripped the community. Or possibly, Louder deliberately lied. His disposition demonstrates the limits to efforts to make rational explanation of the supernatural acts described in 1692. It also serves as a reminder that there were dozens of people beyond the small circle of afflicted girls who believed they had suffered supernatural attacks and were willing to sign dispositions in that effect. Hmm. That's the next part of Afflictions in the Salem Witch Trials. We will continue when we come back um, and see what happens to the Paris girls and what more they can really throw in there accusation-wise. But I'm sure you're well aware by now that... Well, okay, I'm not going to say all of it were lies. A mass majority, a, ma- a really big, large majority of it was lies, okay? It was lies. It was fighting over religion, land, politics. Ugh, same as usual. Those sleep paralysis definitely could have been involved. Nightmares, yes, I believe that could have been involved. Food poisoning, something, uh, a proper illness, mass hysteria could have all played a part, especially due to the political times and the fact that town was so poor at that particular moment. But I do think it doesn't help when someone gets the idea to just lie and dramatise it even more. Just because it's already started, why not throw in some fantastic tale as well, you know? Thank you for listening to this part of the Salem Witch Trials and many blessings.